0: From the University of Chicago Institute of Politics and CNN Audio, The Axe Files, with your host, David Axelrod. This has been such an awful,
1: wrenching week in America. The horrendous murder of George Floyd and the aftermath that has torn our country apart. It seemed an appropriate time to share with you a conversation that I had Back in late 2018, with Brian Stevenson, the founder of the Equal Justice Initiative, who spoke powerfully and compellingly about the impact of our unresolved legacy of racism and our unwillingness to confront it. Here is that conversation. Brian Stevenson, it is an honor to be with you, to have you here at the Institute of Politics and here. Uh, here on the podcast, when people think of Milton, Delaware, <laughs> um, they don't think of it as a segregated place. Uh, but uh, in the early '60s, when you were growing up there, there were still vestiges of of segregation in your in your hometown.
2: Yeah, I think the Eastern Shore uh, is not well understood. I grew up in what we call the Delmarva Peninsula, it's the southernmost county of Delaware and the eastern shore of Maryland and uh, Virginia. And of course, that was a huge um, space uh, during the 19th century for enslavement. There were large slave populations there. And Delaware, of course, was a border state. Um, It was promised that it could keep its enslaved people if it stayed out of the Civil War. So the Emancipation Proclamation, which only applied to the rebelling states of the Confederacy, it did not apply to states like Delaware and Maryland and Kentucky. Uh, There was bitter resentment at the end of the uh, Civil War when emancipation was claimed for the entire nation. And you see that legacy of resentment over full emancipation uh, for black people Uh, On the Eastern Shore. Delaware didn't ratify the 13th Amendment until almost the 20th century. It was Mm. 30, 40 years after most states had. And so we had rigid Jim Crow in my county. Uh, There were no high schools for black kids when my dad was a teenager. He couldn't go to high school in our county. And I started my education in a colored school. The movie theater was segregated, the beaches were segregated, the hotels were segregated. And so that Language of segregation and exclusion was very much what I was born into. How'd you process that as a as a child? You know, I I was every every you know I lived in an all black community. You know, I went to our church. Um, I didn't really think about it much. My parents, like a lot of black families, um, shielded us from the ugliest parts of it. It was actually when integration came that it began to take shape, because then you were having these encounters with kids who. Uh, just thought of you as different. When they integrated the schools, I went out on the playground. I actually came over a semester earlier than the other black kids because my mom didn't like us going to that little school. And for that whole semester, you know, no one was allowed to play with me on the playground. I was mm-hmm. very confused by that. This was during the time there was a TV show on those days, Bill Cosby and somebody else, Robert white. Robert Culp. Robert Culp. Yeah, I Spy. I Spy. Yes. So there was a young white guy who was like, I want to do I Spy, you can be... So we were playing I Spy and the teacher's aide came over and said, no, 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 you can't play with him. And it was just the beginning of this sort of consciousness of exclusion in a very real way. My mom was one of these people who would answer any question you asked. She thought all questions were good questions. And we would drive past the Milton Public School and I'd ask her, what does the word public mean? And she'd bite her lip and not tell me the answer to that question. She didn't want me to know it was a place where I should be allowed to go, but I was being excluded. Your grandmother was a big uh, influence on you. She was. uh, My grandmother was the daughter of people who were enslaved. Uh, She was born in Bowling Green, Virginia. My family, my people came from Caroline County, Virginia. And her father, born in slavery, learned to read as an enslaved person, even though he told her that he could have been killed for that or sold for that. Uh, But after emancipation... Uh, all of the people would come over to his house, and he would read the newspaper. And she used to be. She told me she was so proud that her dad would read the newspaper every night, and it created this love of reading that uh, that she gave to my mother, and my mother gave to me. My, my grandmother obviously didn't get to go to college or, or even high school, um, and my mother didn't either. But they really were invested in the power of education, and so we were really poor. Uh, but my mom went into debt, so we would have the World Book Encyclopedia mm-hmm. in our house. We didn't have functioning septic system all the time, but we had the World Book. And my grandmother was very much behind that. Uh, she was a really powerful force, tactical, strategic. Uh, uh, when I was a little boy, she'd give me these hugs, and she'd squeeze me so tightly, I thought she was trying to hurt me. And uh, she'd see me an hour later, she'd say, Brian, do you still feel me hugging you? And if I said no, she would jump on me again. And so by the time I was 10, my grandmother taught me every time I would see her, I would say, Mama, I'll always feel you hugging me. (laughs) And she had this wisdom. Um, She worked as a domestic her whole life. uh, And she fell. She broke her hip when she was in her 90s. She had cancer and she was dying. And I was a college student. I went to see her. And I was just so sad. And I was pouring my heart out to her and holding her hand because I knew this would be my last conversation. And I stood up to leave, and just before I left, my grandmother opened her eyes and she squeezed my hand. And the last thing she said to me, she said, Brian, do you still feel me hugging you? And then she said, I'm always going to be hugging you. And there have been times in my life when I have felt the embrace of that woman. And she had that power to create an identity that was bigger than her lifetime. Yeah, and deeper than anything you could probably imagine.
1: I was—I um, mentioned uh, before we started chatting here that I uh, had spent some time with Justice Sotomayor mm-hmm. for my show on CNN, and she—she she grew up in the South Bronx, as you know, mm-hmm. and uh, uh, under really difficult circumstances. And her father died when she was nine, mm-hmm. and um, she talked about reading as well. That she discovered the library, her mother took her and she discovered the library and she said that was my that was my portal that was my way out of the out of the south bronx and out of the circumstances in which uh i was uh, i found myself yeah
2: no i think for a lot of kids um like me and, and 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 like the justice it's you you you're looking for a world that seems more hopeful more affirming more inclusive than the world that you see around you and books can provide that. I you know I read the Dr. Seuss books, I read you know the Nancy Drew. All of those kind of typical books, uh, but in the World Book I also saw these people achieving things. I think in books you begin to believe things you haven't seen. Even though you haven't been to these distant lands, you don't doubt that they exist. And if you are going to overcome the ravages of segregation and bigotry, if you're going to overcome you know, kind of a lack of family history of formal education, if you're going to overcome poverty, you have to be willing to believe things you haven't seen.
1: I noticed that you referred to your, uh, I guess this would be your great-grandfather, mm-hmm. as an enslaved person, mm-hmm. not as a slave. Mm-hmm. And that's a, that seems a very intentional choice yeah. of word.
2: Yeah, I think, you know, obviously I'm very concerned about narrative, and I think we have created a vocabulary that softens the brutality of slavery and um, my great-grandfather was a great-grandfather he was not just a slave he was someone who cared deeply about the people he met he had tremendous vision and capacity for survival and struggle and the word slave doesn't really get to that um, people were enslaved they occupied that identity because of something that someone else did to them there were places across the world where there was slavery where you could probably argue That they were societies with slaves. Uh, Slavery wasn't permanent, it wasn't hereditary, it wasn't typically something that you were just sort of born into. Uh, But that wasn't descriptive of what happened in this country, which is why I think slavery in America was so devastating. We weren't a society with slaves, we became a slave society. We created a narrative of racial difference that justified enslavement for black people, which was permanent and hereditary. And it was an identity that got assigned to anyone who was black. Uh, People don't know that in in states like my state of Alabama, uh, in the 1830s, the legislature passed laws making it illegal for any free black person to live in the state. They didn't want to complicate the idea that black meant something other than enslaved. And so challenging that has been really important. And so terms like enslavement for me, that, that someone did something to him, it wasn't his condition. He was born, he should have been born free. He was a human being. He had tremendous capacity to do all kinds of great things. And that was being denied him by this captivity that we he was forced into. And so, yeah, I think it's important that we begin to work on the language that helps us understand how we came to be where we are today.
1: I, I had mentioned to you that I had read this biography yeah. recently, Ron Chernow's biography of General Grant. Who played an enormous role, both as the Civil War general right. and as president, uh, in Reconstruction in the South, and I, I guess I hadn't focused on what an enlightened period this was, what a hopeful right. period this was uh, for uh, for uh, African Americans in the South, mm-hmm. um, and uh, but it was the 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 uh, backlash to mm-hmm. it, yeah was brutal and and in some ways endures to this
2: day. Absolutely. No, absolutely. And I think we haven't talked enough about the fact that the North won the Civil War, but the South won the narrative war. The idea that black people weren't fully human, that they weren't equal, was an idea that prevailed, that persisted after the Civil War. And that set up this violent reaction against reconstruction. And much of my work now is really aimed at deconstructing the narrative elements that have led us to be in the place where we are. And I think it begins actually uh, with the narrative of racial difference that we inherited uh, even before the first African Americans reached uh, this continent. Uh, I think we're a post-genocide society in America. I think what we did to Native people was a genocide. We killed millions through famine and war and disease, but we didn't call it a genocide. We said, no, those native people are different. We constructed this narrative of racial difference that said that native people are savages. And we use that rhetoric to justify that even before we had a constitution, even before we were a nation. And I think that narrative of racial difference is what made it easy for us to embrace enslavement. Mm-hmm. And we had two and a half centuries of enslavement. And I don't think the great evil of, of slavery was involuntary servitude and forced labor. I really think the true evil of American slavery was this narrative of racial difference, this idea, this false idea that black people aren't as good as white people. They're not fully human. They're not fully evolved. They can't do this. They can't do that. They're three-fifths human, as the court said. And that ideology of white supremacy was really the true evil of American slavery And the 13th Amendment, ended in voluntary servitude, it ended forced labor, but it didn't say anything about this narrative of racial difference. And that's why I've argued uh, slavery didn't end in 1865, it just evolved. When Reconstruction comes, you have this massive resistance uh, to giving full equality uh, to emancipated black people. And that's aided by the United States Supreme Court, which basically shuts down full implementation of the 14th Amendment. Full implementation of the 15th Amendment, the civil rights laws that are passed by Congress that General Grant and others worked so hard to get uh, in place were completely undermined by the Supreme Court. And then you see the emergence of this violent resistance to emancipation, and it's what led to 100 years of terrorism. And what happens to black people uh, from uh, the 1870s until the civil rights era is one of the darkest, most tragic uh, periods in American history, black people were pulled out of their homes, hanged, beaten, lynched, murdered, drowned by the thousands, and no one said a word. And these acts of terror weren't done under the cover of darkness. They weren't done by Klan members in hoods. They were done by the legislators and the lawyers and the law enforcement officers and the clergy and the teachers, sometimes literally on the courthouse lawn. And that's why, you know, I characterized that era as an era of racial terrorism. What happened to black people in America is that they were terrorized. Six million black people fled the American South. Uh, You know, the black people in Cleveland and Chicago and Detroit and Los Angeles and Oakland didn't come to these communities as immigrants looking for new economic opportunities. They came to these communities as refugees and exiles from terror in the American South. And we've never really addressed that. And you can't understand why Congress during all of this time of bloodshed and violence where thousands are gathering to torture and torment black people, says, oh, no, we're not going to pass a, an anti-lynching law to empower our federal prosecutors to do something about that. You can't understand that without understanding how this this narrative of racial difference, this ideology of white supremacy, was so widely embraced by people in the South and the North that we just did not believe we could do anything better than that.
1: It also, it also enabled... Uh, another narrative, which is the narrative of uh, the zero-sum game of of loss and resentment, that yeah. somehow if others gain their rights, then I'm losing uh, my rights. If I have to surrender this notion of supremacy, that uh, that, that, is, uh, that is a loss uh, for me. And I think that's something that we deal with to this
2: day. Oh, I absolutely agree. I mean, it, it was very uh, intentionally curated this idea that this is supposed to be a white society. And so if someone who is non-white gains any power, any influence, any ownership in the society, then it's no longer the thing that has been promised to you. And uh, that was very effectively used by a small cabal of white landowners uh, against the economic interests of poor white farmers and poor white people who could have benefited from uh, organizing and better treatment of sharecroppers and tenant farmers we had a lot of uh, poor white people in the american south who could have and easily would have uh, been a powerful uh, partner to this newly newly emancipated group of black people who were just looking for the same opportunities to show what their hard work and labor could achieve but they were effectively divided by this narrative of racial difference this ideology of white supremacy and they became a tool. Black people became a tool for perpetuating that. And so you still see that today where people vote against interests. Uh, they, they vote against health care that they desperately need. They vote against uh, employment practices that will actually allow uh, people with uh, less education and less skills to have the same opportunities to, to, to prosper. Uh, they vote against that because of some threat posed. Uh, by undocumented people or people who are non-white or people who speak a different language or people who have a different faith. And this politics of difference, this narrative of difference, trumping everything else is, um, is one of the great challenges that we face in America. And I, th- and I think it's going to require us to be more intentional about how we talk about this larger narrative struggle. I think we are where we are. Because we've made assumptions, you know, in the 1960s, people thought, oh, if we pass the Voting Rights Act and the Civil Rights Act, uh, we'll get past racial bias and discrimination. And it doesn't work like that. We didn't actually challenge people uh, to give up on that narrative. And you had governors and senators and elected officials after the 1965 Voting Rights Act vowing to never integrate. And, And, you know, we just haven't even talked about the fact that we had this period after civil rights activism, where white elected officials would say, were saying, I'll close the schools before I allow uh, integration. I'd rather our children be ignorant than integrated. And you have to think about what that means uh, that before you can begin to realize how deep and difficult the struggle is going to be to overcome that.
1: We're going to take a short break, and we'll be right back with more of the Axe Files. You, you talk about that period after the passage of the Civil Rights Act, the Voting Rights Act, and uh, there were some major figures in American politics, the George Wallace's of the world, for example, who uh, who invoked that sense of loss, that sense mm-hmm. of theft, mm-hmm. uh, of place as, uh, to mobilize uh, their voters. Do you hear
2: echoes of that in today's politics? Oh, absolutely. Oh, absolutely. I mean, it's, it's this, I mean, <laughs> you know, we're in a moment where the current president of the United States uh, organized a political campaign rooted in a slogan of Make America Great Again. I mean, as an African-American, what decade am I supposed to want to relive? When was America better for black people or for women or for a lot of people in this country who have been marginalized? And it hasn't even been better for a lot of other people, but it is this invocation of a different time. We had a Senate race in Alabama just a year ago. yes, And you'll remember that the Republican candidate, Roy Morwin questioned about when was America best, great at its best, He invoked the era of slavery, Yeah, and he could disconnect the brutality uh, and the horrors of enslavement.
1: I think I'm right about this, but I think he somehow suggested that the slaves had benefited from it as well. Yeah,
2: exactly. And it's this sort of perversion of that very idea that these things haven't been that bad, and that's that's the part of it. Uh, And yes, you still see that happening today. Um, We don't have much shame, and I think that's the biggest... If I had to assess the biggest threat to our democracy, uh, the biggest challenge uh, in a culture like ours, it is that we regard shame and apology and regret as signs and symbols of weakness. Um, uh, Very few American politicians want to apologize. We equate that with weakness. And I don't think you become a great society if you're not willing to admit when you make mistakes. Uh, We do the Olympics great. We do winning great. We do a lot of things great. We've got a big old songbook for all the times when Hmm. we win. and We've got a hundred songs to sing. But when we make a mistake, when we do something shameful, uh, like kill millions of native people or enslave people for two and a half centuries or lynch people or create laws that say you can't marry somebody because they're a different color. When you have that history, that shameful history, and you say nothing, then you create a political culture where you don't grow. Things don't get better. And that's why I think we need to increase our consciousness uh, around the things that we have done wrong. We need to create a political environment where people can say, I'm sorry. You show me two people who have been in love for 50 years, I'll show you two people who have learned how to apologize to one another when they make mistakes. It builds something stronger and healthier. And we haven't done that in our political culture. And so you see that in the current political discourse. Uh, and I'll give you an example. So so. <laughs> uh, You would think that no one thinks there's anything defensible about codified racial segregation. But the state constitution of Alabama still prohibits black and white kids from going to school together. It's still in our state constitution. We only took out the language that prohibits interracial marriage in 2000. Very close vote. 2004, the business community uh, wants to get that language out of the state constitution because they're competing with Illinois or Michigan for the next European car company or the Asian car company to build their plant in Alabama. And the people in Illinois and Michigan are saying, well, here's the copy of the Alabama state constitution. Before you make a decision, go down there, you ought to read this. And it's undermining their business interests. So they put it on the ballot. You can only change the state constitution with a statewide referendum. They put it on the ballot. Nobody talks about it. We have no practice of talking honestly and thoughtfully about this history. And so what happens is the majority of people in the state vote to keep the language in the state constitution. So now we've ratified it in 2004. Eight years later, they put it on the ballot again after the Obama election in 2012, and the percentage of people voting to keep it in goes up. Yeah. And so today, I live in a state where but for federal intervention, but for the federal government, but for the federal constitution, it wouldn't be legal for that very, very talented football team that keeps winning all of these national championships to even be on the field. And we can cheer that team and be proud of that team while voting to hold on to this remnant of segregation. And the ability to do both is what threatens a democracy. Because if we're not honest, if we don't actually have shame about the shameful things we do, we don't actually become healthy. We don't grow healthy. And I don't think we're healthy, we're still burdened. By this history,
1: well, you know, you raised the issue. uh, You said the vote went up after uh, President Obama got elected, and I wanted to ask you about that because um, uh, I stood out here in Grant Park uh, in Chicago, and obviously I was deeply involved in that campaign. But I was there that night, and at two hundred and something thousand people, two hundred fifty thousand people, tears. Uh, coming down their cheeks uh black people and white people and people of all backgrounds uh and there was this sense that a rubicon had been crossed that a that a barrier had been broken and that america was uh uh, america was um uh, unshackling itself from its past in some way and saying we're ready uh to move forward but uh uh Much as I asked you before, was there a backlash from Mm. Reconstruction? Mm. Do you think there was a backlash from that event, the elevation of the election of a
2: a black man as president of the United States? Oh, I don't think there's any question. I mean, you know, you just have to look at the increase in hate crimes uh, since 2008. You just have to listen to the rhetoric. And any time there has been some marker of progress there has been a very, very strong reaction. That was true after emancipation. That was true after the civil rights uh, era. And I think it's true today. So I don't think there's any question about it. I think that that what frustrates me a little bit is that we actually think we can overcome almost 400 years of um, racial intolerance and bigotry and hatred By doing something easy, we Mm -hmm. cannot overcome this history by doing something comfortable and convenient. And let's be honest, it was kind of convenient uh, to vote for uh, the most gifted and qualified candidate in a presidential election. He was by far the most gifted and appropriate person to elect. So it didn't require the kind of courage that I think it's going to take to actually deal with this sort of history. And then you had people saying, oh, we're now in a post-racial society. Yeah. I mean, it was so frustrating to so many of us at the time. It's ludicrous now when you look at what we're going on. We actually, you know, I have somebody talking about banning Muslims and demonizing Mexicans and uh, characterizing some countries based on the ethnicity of the people in those countries as uh, not even fully human. And so it's kind of, um, it's sort of bizarre that we actually thought it would be that easy. Yeah, I Um, I must
1: say that I don't think, the one person, one person, not the one person, but one person who I don't think believed that was uh, was Barack Obama himself, oh, you oh, know, I who that. Yeah. had lived these issues and worked in this space and understood that we had a lot of work to do. Absolutely, it's also important, I think, to point out that the nature of our history is you take some, you take steps forward. There is this retrenchment. You have to fight those battles. That doesn't invalidate those steps forward.
2: No, I think that's right. I just think we have to engage in a broader struggle, to be honest. I don't think, I I, I mean, I don't think, and this is maybe not the right venue for this, that we can imagine the kind of change we want to see in this country by focusing just on elections. Believe me, nothing Mm -hmm. is critical. It's more critical to the health of a democracy than who we elect. But I think we desperately need truth and reconciliation in America. And I believe that truth and reconciliation is sequential. We're going to have to tell the truth about this history. We're going to have to talk about all of the things that continue to burden us. We're going to have to give... You know, when you go to South Africa, you can't spend time there without being confronted with the legacy of apartheid. Their constitutional court is surrounded by emblems and icons and statues and monuments that are designed to make sure that no South African forgets the hardship of apartheid. When you go to Berlin, Germany... Uh, you can't go 100 meters in Berlin without seeing the stones that have been placed next to the homes of Jewish families. They want you to go to the national Memo- the Holocaust Memorial. The Germans are trying to change the narrative. They don't want to be thought of as fa- fascists and Nazis for the rest of their lives. They're trying to create a new identity. But in this country, we don't talk about slavery. We don't talk about lynching. We don't talk about the native genocide. We haven't talked about this history of segregation. We don't talk about the presumption of dangerousness and guilt that still burdens black and brown people. The Bureau of Justice now predicts that one in three black male babies born in this country is expected to go to jail or prison. And no one was talking about that in the midterm elections. Nobody will talk about that in the 2020 elections until we actually recognize that there is a connection from between that phenomenon and this larger history. And so we've made race the thing that you're not allowed to talk about. And if, as long as that becomes true, we're going to be passing from generation to generation the same narrative, the same corrupted, polluted environment that makes it so hard for us to get to a different place.
1: I, I, I want to pick up your journey yeah. here and, and how you got to this place Yeah. Uh, uh, that you, and and the the ideas that you're articulating yeah. here. Uh, because obviously those these these were things that evolved in you through yeah. experience and exposure and so on. Uh, you went to Eastern University in mm-hmm. Pennsylvania mm-hmm. Uh, and then to Harvard Law School and um, what were those experiences?
2: Yeah I mean you know I Uh, Because I did start in a segregated school, I had this idea that lawyers could do things that I thought were pretty amazing. Because there was never a time in the county where I grew up where if you had a a referendum, you could get majority support for ending racial segregation in schools. And so I was very intrigued by this idea that the law could protect the politically disfavored, the politically uh, excluded, the politically uh, disempowered. Because that was the community that I felt connected to. And that's what motivated me to go to law school. The path to law school wasn't an obvious one. I didn't say, oh, I want to be a lawyer. I never really thought about it. I went to a college. Eastern was great. It was a beautiful campus. I was a philosophy major. And to be honest, I got to my uh, senior year, and and, uh, somebody said, you know, nobody's going to pay you to philosophize when you (laughs) graduate from college. Yeah. And I tried to figure out how to stay in school. And I you know, my first generation college, you know, no no one else in my family had gone to college before me and my brother. And um, I didn't know that if you want to do graduate work in history or English or political science to get admitted to graduate school, you actually have to know something about history, English, or political science. I was pretty intimidated by that. So I kept looking. And to be honest, that's how I found my way to law school. It was very clear to me. You don't need to know anything to go to law school. Uh-huh. And I ended up at Harvard and was very disillusioned after my first year. is that? They, they weren't talking about race or poverty or social inequality. It just didn't seem connected to me. And so I left. I finished my first year and I went over to the School of Government. I had to get a degree in public policy at the Kennedy School. Mm-hmm. And I remember two days, two months into that term, waking up one day, looking in the mirror, thinking, wow, I'm even more miserable here than I was (laughs) at the law school, because they were teaching us to, to maximize benefits and minimize costs. But it didn't seem to matter whose benefits got maximized and whose costs got minimized. And I went back to the law school and started doing what I saw a lot of people do, which is rationalize a career in the law that I knew wasn't going to be fulfilling, wasn't going to be affirming. And it was really in the midst of that crisis that I took a course, uh, Betsy Bartlett taught a course, uh, Harvard has a January term, and it required you to go work with the Human Rights Organization during the month of January. And that's when I went to Georgia and met these lawyers representing people on death row and meeting condemned prisoners, meeting people who were literally dying for legal assistance, just radicalized my interest in the law. You've written this uh
1: wonderful and celebrated book, Just Mm -hmm. Mercy, A a Story of Justice and Redemption, soon to be a major motion picture, I understand. (laughs) Um, And um, you talk about that uh, experience of being exposed to that which you'd never been exposed to before. You did have, in your family, you had a tragic story. Your grandfather uh, was murdered at the age of 86, and, um, and... so that was an exposure to violence and sure. the criminal justice sure. uh, system and so on. But t- talk about your first exposure to people who are on death row. Yeah.
2: Well, I think for me at this moment when I'm trying to figure out what I'm going to do, all of my classmates are getting you know, in their suits and they're interviewing with these law firms. There's this whole process that you see unveil at, at a place like Harvard that I just didn't understand. Going to Georgia... Um, and being on death row just really changed everything. They'd asked me to go down to see a man who who they hadn't had time to see, and they said, just go explain to him that he's not at risk of execution any time in the next year. And so I went down there, and I was really nervous because I, I thought he'd be so disappointed when he discovered that I was just a law student. I didn't really know very much at this point in my legal career. And so when they brought him into the visitation room, I was struck by the chains. He had handcuffs on his wrist. He had a chain around his waist. He had shackles on his ankles. It took them almost 10 minutes to unchain him. And when he was unchained and he walked over, I just began to apologize. I said, I'm so sorry. I'm just a law student. I don't know anything about the death penalty. I don't know much about criminal procedure. And I finally said, Look, but I'm here to tell you that you're not at risk of execution any time in the next year. Uh, and that's when this man grabbed my hands and he said, Say that again. And I said, You're not at risk of execution any time in the next year. And he said, Say that again. I said, You're not at risk of execution any time in the next year. And this man said, Thank you, thank you, thank you. He said, You're the first person I've met in the two years I've been on death row who's not a death row prisoner or death row guard. He said, I've been talking to my wife and my kids on the phone, but I haven't let them come and visit because I was afraid I'd have an execution date, and I didn't want them to have to deal with that. And we started talking. Um, we were exactly the same age, and I'd only scheduled to be there an hour, and an hour turned into two hours and three hours, and the guards were waiting outside, and they got angry because I hadn't ended visit. And finally the guards came in, and they were so angry, they started treating this man really roughly, and they threw him against the wall. They pulled his hand, arms back. They put the handcuffs back on. They put the chains back on. I was begging them to be gently, gent, gentler, but they ignored me. And they started shoving this man toward the door and, and pushing him so violently. But when he got near the door, I, I saw him plant his feet. And then he turned to me before he left. And this condemned man said, Brian, don't worry about this. You just come back. And then he did something I've never forgotten. He stood there. He closed his eyes. He threw his head back and he started to sing. And he started singing this hymn I used to hear all the time. He started singing, I'm pressing on the upward way. New heights I'm gaining every day. Still praying as I'm onward bound. And then he said, Lord, plant my feet on higher ground. And the guards stopped. And the guards recovered. They started pushing him down the hallway. You could hear the chains clanging, but you could hear this man singing about higher ground. And that was the moment that I realized I wanted to help condemned people get to higher ground. But more than that, I realized that my journey to higher ground was tied to his journey. And I went back to Harvard Law School and you couldn't get me out of the law library. I needed to know everything about comedy and federalism and the jurisprudence necessary to help condemned people get to higher ground. And I, I like talking about it because I I really believe if, if I've done anything with my legal career, if I'm any kind of lawyer, if I've had any ability to help people who were in distress situations. It's because I got close enough to a condemned person to hear them singing about higher ground in a moment of confusion and doubt about what to do. And it's why I believe so much in the power of proximity, of getting closer to the poor and the excluded and the marginalized. I don't think we can solve the problems of inequality and injustice if we don't get closer to those who are suffering from those problems.
1: You went to Alabama Uh, to establish a a center, Mm -hmm. a a death penalty defense uh, center. That evolved into the Equal Justice uh, Initiative. But you tell a story about the first execution that you witnessed.
2: Yeah, I mean, you know, I was in Alabama because Alabama didn't and still doesn't have a a public defender system. There's no statewide public defender system. There were no resources allocated for people on death row. Um, There were a lot of people getting execution dates, and so... Um, we opened up this office uh, with the hope that we could recruit some people to help us meet the needs of the legal poor. And uh, as soon as I got there, I got a call from a man who was scheduled to be executed in 30 days. And he begged me to take his case. And, and I said, look, I'm sorry, I, I, I can't take cases yet. We don't have books, we don't have staff, we don't have computers. And I never will forget him just you know, just staying on the line and not saying a word. And then he hung up. And I was so unnerved by that, that I didn't sleep much. And the next day, he called me back. He said, Mr. Stevenson, uh, I know you don't have your books and your computers. Uh, You don't have to tell me you can stop the execution. You don't have to tell me you can keep them from executing me. He said, but please tell me you'll represent me. He said, I don't think I can make it these next 29 days if there's no hope at all. And when he put it like that, it became impossible to say no. So I said, yes. And we worked really hard, but couldn't stop that execution. And it became a defining moment for me because being with him on the night of that execution, when he told me about how all day long people were saying, what can we do to help you? Can we get stamps to mail your letters? Can we get you the phone? Do you want water? Do you want coffee? And then him finally saying, Brian, it's been so strange. More people have asked me what they can do to help me in the last 14 hours of my life than they ever did in the first 19 years of my life. It just became really clear to me that we were not We were failing people in some pretty profound ways. And I didn't want us to continue failing. And that was kind of really important, because you can't do the kind of work that I do representing people who are condemned without being prepared for some setbacks and some heartbreak.
1: The central story in your book is about uh, a case involving a man named Walter McMillan, uh, who was convicted and sentenced to death um, in, in a shocking way, yeah, uh, overtly uh, unjust. Yeah, um, talk talk a little bit about yeah. that.
2: Well, it was you know in some ways I, I focused on that case because it's sort of a microcosm of all that's wrong, you know, with our criminal justice system, including our collective indifference. Because uh, Walter McMillan was actually uh, accused of a crime that took place in Monroeville, Alabama. Yeah. And Monroeville, Alabama is, of course, where the famous novelist to kill a Mockingbird. Harper Lee grew up, and that's where she set her novel, uh, To Kill a Mockingbird. And that community has this just romantic relationship to that story. Uh, they've renamed streets after characters in the book. They closed the old courthouse. When Gregory Peck came to Monroeville to shoot one of the scenes for the movie, they've turned it into a museum. It is the thing about which the community is proudest of. And yet there was complete um, hostility to the idea of providing a fair trial to this black man accused of killing a young white woman. And it was one of these outrageous cases where the crime takes place in downtown Monroeville. The police can't solve the crime. Months go by. uh, And there's a lot of pressure on law enforcement, which we frequently see. Uh, And so they arrest Walter McMillan. I think most of them knew then that he wasn't guilty. And there were witnesses who had him at a completely different place. Uh, That's the really painful part. Uh, On the day of the crime, he was actually with his family raising money for his church. There were dozens of black people who were with him 11 miles from the crime scene. And so when he was arrested, they all went to the sheriff and the project and said, look, you've got the wrong person, and they were ignored. They actually put Mr. McMillan on death row pre-trial so for 15 months before the trial, he was on death row. And so the, the press would say death row defendant Walter McMillan will be arraigned and death row defendant Walter McMillan. And you create this environment. And uh, black folks would say to me, they'd say, Mr. Stevenson, it would have been so much better if he'd been out in the woods hunting by himself when this crime took place. Because at least then we could entertain the possibility that he might be guilty. But because we were there with him, because we know he's innocent, we feel like we've been convicted too. Yeah. And that sense that it's a, that it's a community accusation, that it's a community conviction, a community sentence, was very palpable. And notwithstanding the romance of To Kill a Mockingbird, there was just complete hostility uh, to confronting the overwhelming evidence of his innocence. We found all kinds of evidence. The man who they got to testify against him admitted that his trial testimony was false. We had tapes of him acknowledging that. We had other witnesses. A police officer had been to his house on the day of the crime buying from the fish fry where he was selling money who could confirm his innocence. And still, everybody just resisted and fought. Uh, I got more death threats working on that case, uh, an innocent man, uh, than probably any other case I've worked on.
1: Is that a pretty frequent occurrence for you?
2: It's unfortunate that we do have a pretty violent history in in the American South when people push on these questions of justice and equality. There, There seems to be this instinct to use violence to silence that, and so yes, we've had to deal with some of that. And uh,
1: ultimately, you were able to prevail.
2: Yeah, I mean, we uh, <laughs> we presented all of this evidence. We got all the witnesses who testified against him to acknowledge that their testimony was false, and we eventually won a reversal, and we won his uh, release. And it was incredibly exciting and empowering and energizing. But it was also tragic that it took so much. Uh, to win the freedom for an innocent man condemned to die in prison, and it took so little uh, to convict an innocent man and sentence him to death, and, and that's still true today. That phenomenon, that dynamic. And now
1: a word from our sponsors. We'll be right back with more of the Axe Files. The other work that you've, uh, I mean, you've done a lot of work uh, that is noteworthy. You've done a lot of work on behalf of juveniles in Mm -hmm. the criminal justice system that go to whether they can be uh, sentenced uh, to life in prison and so on. A couple of cases before the Supreme Court. Yeah,
2: yeah, yeah. Well, I think that's another area where I think there's a need for tremendous narrative work. We, in the 80s, developed this idea that some children aren't children, And uh, that led legislators to pass these laws where we actually lowered the minimum age for trying children as adults. And so we put thousands of 13 and 14 and 15-year-old kids in adult jails and prisons. We still have 13 states today with no minimum age for trying a child as an adult. I've actually represented 9 and 10-year-old kids who are looking at life or 50-year prison sentences. And when you work with that population, it's so painfully clear That you're working with a child. Uh, You know, I I should never have to go into court and ask the court for permission for my client uh, to listen to uh, speakers so he doesn't have to hear the adult words to allow my client to use a coloring book while we talk about Mm -hmm. the issues in the case. But it's all a function of the distance we've created between where we are and the most vulnerable children in our society. This was a policy. This was a mindset that wasn't just impacting kids in the criminal justice system. It was impacting kids in the school system where we were embracing rhetoric like zero tolerance to justify putting five and six-year-old kids in handcuffs, sending kids from the second grade to detention facilities. And this idea that some children aren't children is what led to this environment where we had all of these kids condemned to die in prison, and the legal argument was very simple. I just that it's unusual. We're the only country in the world that condemns children uh, to life imprisonment without parole, and the other part of the argument is that it's cruel to say to any thirteen-year-old you're only fit to die in prison. It's a complete uh, rejection of all the values that most of us have embraced, and so I think you know we don't show our commitment to children by how we treat privileged kids and gifted kids and talented kids. I think the true measure of America's commitment to its children has to be viewed in how it treats abused kids, traumatized kids, kids in juvenile detention facilities, kids who are making mistakes. And if we're condemning them and throwing them away, uh, even before they have the chance to change, I think it says something really unhealthy about who we are. And that was the genesis behind that work. We won those cases. Uh, and we're seeing some really wonderful outcomes for a lot of those uh, clients. But we still have a lot of states where kids are put in adult jails and prisons where they're threatened and assaulted and brutalized on a daily basis, and that has to change if we're going to really make progress.
1: You, uh, you also argued a case uh, just recently in the Supreme Court on behalf of a death row inmate mm-hmm. who has dementia. Yeah, and can't really understand what's happening.
2: Yeah, I think mental health is, the, is sort of the next area where we need tremendous reforms in our criminal justice system. There are hundreds of thousands of people in jails and prisons who suffer from severe mental illness. And uh, one of my concerns is that we, have, we enforce the Americans with Disabilities Act in the private sector. We enforce it in the public sector. The one sector where we don't enforce it is the justice sector. And we have mandatory schemes where judges can't even consider the mental status of the accused when they impose these harsh sentences, and and that's played out in the death penalty space. We have created some protections for the insane and for the intellectually disabled when it comes to execution, Uh, but we haven't done that for people who suffer from dementia, another neurological disease. And So this case is about whether it violates the Eighth Amendment to execute someone who uh, cannot orient a time and place who doesn't know where he is, who doesn't remember the crime, who can't tell you who you are half the time. And uh, we're just questioning whether any legitimate penological objective can be advanced by executing someone in that in that space. And if we've decided that it's not constitutional to execute the insane, then we think that protection should be extended. And we, we I do think we're going to have to get more sober about how we deal with the same problems that people deal with outside of jails and prisons are problems that we're seeing inside jails and prisons. We have the largest population of uh, terminal sentences, life without parole or death penalty, in the world. And we're going to have a growing population of people who suffer from these devastating, heartbreaking uh, diseases. And we haven't, the law hasn't caught up with that.
1: On this issue of mass incarceration, the crime bill in 1994, and there were other preludes to it. Uh, created all of these categories of determinate sentencing. Yeah. Um, how how much has that contributed to uh, your concerns and to the growth of this population? Yeah.
2: I, I think, you know, as a, as a broad, just as an empirical matter, of course, we've got 2.2 million people in jails and prisons. Ninety percent of them are in the state court system. And so the stuff that Congress does directly only impacts about 10 percent. But the narratives, the ideas, the rhetoric, I think, has a much broader impact on the larger criminal justice debate. We've made it—
1: Presumably states emulate uh, in, in places uh, Yeah, I,
2: some of these policies. That's right. And there's an argument that you could make that Congress was kind of emulating what states were doing. But we we created a political environment where it wasn't safe to say, I believe in rehabilitation. I believe in second chances. I don't believe in harsh punishment. I think we've been too excessive. I I don't think we should think of people with drug addiction and drug dependency as criminals. I think we should think of them as people with health problems. We created a toxic political environment where no one or very few people were willing to say, you know what, that's too much. That's extreme. That's unfair. That's harsh. I represented people doing 50, 60 years in prison for writing a bad check for $30 because of these mandatory uh, life sentences and harsh sentences, habitual fender laws, three strikes you out. That's what we liked. And that political environment was shaped a lot by what you heard in Washington, what you heard in Congress. The other thing that the Congress did was it created millions of dollars uh, that could be accessed by states to fight the war on drugs. And so you saw hundreds of millions of dollars going to states with these drug tra- task forces. So we've had this overfunded... <laughs> Drug uh, uh, army and an underfunded, underfunded treatment. Treatment and even basic public safety. Right. So, we could do a better job investigating and prosecuting people who are in possession of marijuana than we could for uh, serious crimes like rape and murder. And that distortion also created a lot of this over incarceration. So, you know, we've got a lot of people in jails and prisons who are not a threat to public safety they are sort of victims of this rhetorical war that we've been fighting that criminalizes and demonizes anyone who falls down. And uh, that's going to have to change, and I think Congress and people in Washington can help with that change.
1: Well, there is this bill that's sitting in the United States Senate right now. I think it's called the First Step Act. Right. Called that because it is a modest step to do away with some of these categories of mandatory Uh, sentencing, uh, and it appeared, there there appears to be a bipartisan consensus, but there's some resistance uh, among some, particularly on on the Republican side. What is your, presumably you've been involved in following that. What's your level of Confidence that something's actually going to happen here?
2: Well, I don't know. I mean, I think, again, first of all, it is incredibly modest. It's a very, very incremental gesture. It didn't include uh, some of the sentencing reforms that even Republicans in the Senate thought should be in there. And that was the reason why some House Democrats didn't vote for it. Uh, I think we've been waiting for the return after all of this bipartisan conversation, after all of the panels and the symposia and the conferences. There's supposed to be a return, <laughs> and we haven't seen that return yet. Uh, and I don't know what we're going to ha- what's going to happen. I do think, uh, logically and rationally, economically, morally, uh, we should reduce the prison population in the United States. And not only should every state be seriously engaged in that effort, the Congress should be engaged in a similar effort. You know, we'll see. I mean, the, we're we're in such a paralyzed moment when it comes to uh, political reform of any kind that uh, uh, I don't I don't know what to expect. To be honest,
1: uh, you also have been deeply involved. You talked about coming to grips with our past, mm-hmm. and you've done extensive research. Uh, and your organization has Mm -hmm. on lynching. Mm -hmm. And you've created this monument Mm -hmm. uh, in Montgomery, which I have yet to visit. It opened this year. Everyone who does is incredibly moved by it. Yeah.
2: Well, I'm incredibly proud. We have a new museum called the Legacy Museum from Enslavement to Mass Incarceration. It's a narrative museum that talks about the history of enslavement and its evolution. And for me, we're going to have to create cultural spaces that move us. Uh, When I go to the Holocaust Museum in DC, uh, at the end of it, I am moved to say never again. And we haven't created many spaces in America that motivate people to say never again to the racial violence and bigotry that uh, so dominates our history. And that's that's the hope behind this museum. And the companion site is a six acre site called the National Memorial for Peace and Justice. And it's a It's a a space where we have dedicated uh, hundreds of monuments to the thousands of victims of racial terror lynchings in the United States. We actually name thousands of people. Uh, When you walk in there, we tell a story about the history. Uh, We have a, a really powerful sculpture that depicts enslaved people in chains. And one of the interesting responses I've gotten is that people have said, you know, I've lived in this country my whole life. I've never seen a sculpture on slavery that depicts the brutality of enslavement and the humanity of the enslaved. And then we walk people into this square where the first quarter of the monuments that are about six feet tall are at eye level. You can read the names and the counties. And it's been powerful to see people, family members, who came from some of these places, seeing their family name and just wrapping their arms around these monuments and sobbing. And then we lift the monuments. As you go through, they start to rise because you can't understand that history without understanding the way these bodies would be lifted up to torment and traumatize and torture uh, black people and that terror we try to express in this space. The exciting thing for me is that when you come out of the memorial, there's a, there's a replica for each one of the monuments, and we are challenging uh, over 800 counties in America uh, to claim their monument, to take back to their community a replica where that history can be made visible in the place where that violence took place. And I I do think our landscape has been complicit in the racial inequality that we see. We memorialize the Confederacy. We romanticize Jefferson Davis In my state. Jefferson Davis's birthday is a state holiday. Uh, Confederate Memorial Day is a state holiday. We don't have Martin Luther King Day in Alabama. We have Martin Luther King slash Robert E. Lee Day. And the landscape uh, is complicit in this kind of false iconography and narrative of greatness. And I think we're going to have to challenge that too, which is why we want these monuments to be placed in these communities where this horrific violence took place.
1: You mentioned uh, this uh, this man you defended, Herbert, uh, Herbert Richardson, mm-hmm. who was led away mm-hmm. singing mm-hmm. a hymn. And uh, I didn't ask you at the beginning but I I, I think this is a good place to end yeah. uh, you spent a lot of time in in church mm-hmm. uh, as a as a child yeah um, and how much does your spirituality inform your thinking around all of this
2: yeah oh it's central I mean I, I think because I grew up in a place where everybody had to believe things they hadn't seen uh, that's been really core to my, uh, you know, my own convictions, I think something's better waiting for us. I I think something better is waiting for us on these issues of equality and justice. And uh, that's a narrative that, you know, you uh, reinforce in the church, in the church I grew up in. And I was just raised and uh, taught by people who didn't have very much, who often had to suffer all kinds of indignations and humiliation and mistreatment and abuse, Uh, but they would come to church on Sunday and they would stand up and they'd sing these songs like, wouldn't take nothing from my journey now. There was this undeniable hope rooted in uh, their worldview. And because I was shaped by that, I just came to believe that hopelessness is the enemy of justice. And uh, I've got to believe things I haven't seen and uh, I think because I do believe that injustice prevails, where hopelessness persists, we have to stay hopeful. And for me, the, the faith uh, community and, and my faith has been critical you know, to sustaining that hope. I often look out of my window in Montgomery and I think about the people trying to do what I'm trying to do today, uh, uh, what the people were doing 60 years ago. People like John Lewis, Rosa Parks, Dr. King, Edie Nixon, all these amazing people who were in Montgomery And what they had to frequently say is, my head is bloody but not bowed. And it takes a certain kind of conviction, even when your life is being threatened, um, even when people are saying horrible things to you, it takes a certain kind of conviction to stand up when other people say sit down, to speak when other people say be quiet. And I'm holding on to that conviction. I'm holding on to that faith. I'm holding on to that belief system because I believe we still have difficult days ahead. Some of us are going to have to stand up when people say sit down. Some of us are going to have to speak when people say be quiet. And I want the whole um, I want the whole toolkit. And uh, for me, uh, the people of faith, the church has played a critical role, and I think it can play an even greater role moving forward.
1: And how does it, I'm sure you're asked from time to time, how can you defend people Mm. who have committed heinous crimes and inflicted great violence Mm -hmm. and, and great hardship? Uh, on others in great sadness. Mm-hmm.
2: Well, I mean, uh, for the very same reason that I can hope for America even though we perpetrated a genocide, even though we are a slave nation, even though we are uh, a nation that tolerated terrorism and lynching, even though we're a segregation a nation, we're not just a slave society, we're not just a genocide society, we're not just a lynching society or a segregated society, we're more than that. And my clients are more than their worst crimes. I I believe that everybody is more than the worst thing they've ever done. I think if someone tells a lie, they're not just a liar. I think if someone takes something, they're not just a thief. I think even if you kill somebody, you're not just a killer. And justice requires that we know the other things you are before we judge you. Uh, And so for me, because I believe that wholeheartedly, it's not difficult to, to, to stand up for the accused. I hate violence. I I hate that we have communities where people are being assaulted and robbed and beaten. I hate the homicides that I I have to deal with so often, and I want to get to a different place. But we're not going to get to that place by killing people back, by hurting people back, uh, by ignoring the trauma that gives rise to so much of this violence, by not recognizing the epidemic that drug addiction and dependency can be. And so to get to a better place, we're going to have to just talk more openly and more honestly about what human beings require. And human beings require justice. And we don't provide justice to a lot of people in this country who are poor and accused and neglected and incarcerated. And so that has to change. And if we can do it for them, we can do it for everybody else.
1: Well, uh, the progress we make is going to be in no small part to the efforts uh, of you and your colleagues. Well, thank you. And uh, we're as I uh, let me end where I began by saying, honor to be with you. Thank you, and to have you here at the Institute of well, Politics.
0: thank you very much. Thank you for listening to the Axe Files. Brought to you by the University of Chicago Institute of Politics and CNN Audio. The executive producer of the Axe Files is Emily Stanitz. The show is also produced by Miriam Annenberg, Samantha Neal, and Allison Siegel. And special thanks to our partners at CNN, including Courtney Coop, Megan Marcus, and Ashley Lusk. For more programming from the IOP, visit politics.uchicago.edu.